Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'il s'en va, les pieds. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. So, you're still working on your series concerning the JEDP documentary hypothesis. That's right. Slash Mount Ebal, Cursed Tablet, slash C.S. Lewis's Modern Theology and Biblical <laughs> Criticism episodes, right? You always make things complicated. You make it sound so long and involved. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're only on the sixth one this week. That's it. That's right. You only have like, what, three more to go? Yeah. <laughs> I think two more. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, two more. That's so right. You just posted eight. the other one, right? So this has been a long marathon series. It has. Talking about talk about beating a dead horse. Well, I don't know. I'm just kidding. The horse is dead yet. I'm still <laughs> no, working on it. No, it's not. It really isn't. I'm just teasing with you. It's been a really, really, really good series. And I've, I hope so. Yeah, and I've had a good time watching you and your excitement about it and your research, listening to your research. The link to those episodes should be in the description here if you haven't had the chance to listen to it. And also... You and I have discussed Lewis's Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism essay in the past. We did it here on No Compromise, as well as you've read it. Right. Yeah, you've read the essay without commentary as yeah, well. I, I on hope no, on that simple our gifts. listeners are taking advantage of that. Yeah. It's certainly worthwhile to listen to it and to read it for yourself, because yeah. audio listening and also reading for oneself are two complementary ways yeah. of accessing material and understanding it, and then discussing it. I mean, as an academic myself and as a teacher, the more ways that you can interact with content, the better right. you understand it. Right, exactly, exactly. So anything you may be interested in listening to that we've mentioned, the links should be in the description. If they're not, you can search for them. Make sure you put John Wise in your search if you if you search for Simple Gifts or The Christian Atheist or No Compromise. Otherwise, ask us and we'll direct you to it. Okay, so we decided to continue with G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. Last week, we took a break and did the the Poe recitation. But the weeks before that, we did Chapter 7 of The The Everlasting Man. Right. That was really good. And we did that because it it ties into, I'm not going to say the title again. Yeah, don't do the title again. (laughs) The current series on Christian Atheists. Right. Um, And it actually ended up being very popular. We Mm -hmm. got an awful lot of hits on that on YouTube, way Mm -hmm. beyond what we normally got. So that's kind of exciting. And you mentioned that the introduction had relevant points to your series as well. Right, especially now. Mm -hmm. So we decided to, let's go back to the introduction and go through that now. Right. His book is so full of good stuff. Right. Chesterton is stunningly brilliant, as evidenced by Lewis's own love of his work. So The Everlasting Man was instrumental in Lewis's own turn to Christ. That's right. Yeah. So Uh it's definitely worth spending some time on. And who knows, maybe we'll do even more of this as time goes by. We'll see how things play out. Right, right. And so remember, you can hear it on Simple Gifts on the podcast or on YouTube. Okay, so normally we start out with background information, but we already did that two weeks ago when we discussed chapter seven. So if you want to listen to the background information, you want to go back to chapter seven, the background information on the book, on G.K. Chesterton as well. So one of the things we want to remember probably is that this book was written in response to H.G. Wells, his history of man. Outline of history, yes. Right. Okay, so the book, The Everlasting Man, it opens up with an introduction. 
right? And the very first part of that introduction is what Chesterton denominates a preparatory note. Okay. And I'd like to just read it All right. um, and then maybe comment a bit. This book needs a preliminary note that its scope be not misunderstood. The view suggested is historical rather than theological, and its thesis is that those who say that Christ stands side by side with similar myths and his religion side by side with similar religions are only repeating a very stale formula contradicted by a very striking fact. Mm -hmm. And so at the very beginning here, I want to make the point that what Chesterton is trying to do is present an historical presentation. And rather than theological, he says. Mm -hmm. So he's concerned not strictly with the theological, but with the historical. That's right. In order to make a very particular point. And this preparatory note, I think properly, Chesterton thought essential to this book. Because it is easy to misunderstand what he's trying to do here. Mm -hmm. And what he's trying to do is, in its own way, incredibly difficult. Yeah. Because in certain ways, there's no way to really talk about what he's trying to do. The book is an attempt to lay out something that words don't seem to do justice mm -hmm. to. And part of that is exactly this procedure that he adopts in the book that is historical rather than theological to shock the reader into understanding the absolute novelty and uniqueness. Right of the subject matter he's dealing with. Mm -hmm. right. and, and I'll shut up there. <laughs> you don't need to shut up. I think that's very good. It's very good to help us understand. Okay, so uh, one of the uh, beginning statements about the book I and mean, really touches on what you've been trying to say in your recent Christian Atheist series. I'd like to read that. Okay. It says, it concerns some boy whose farm or cottage stood on such a slope and who went on his travels to find something such as the effigy and grave of some giant. And when he was far enough from home, he looked back and saw that his own farm and kitchen garden, shining flat on the hillside like the colors and quarterings of a shield, were but parts of some such gigantic figure on which he had always lived, but which was too large and too close to be seen. That, I think, is a true picture of the progress of any real independent intelligence today, and that is the point of this book. The point of this book, in other words, is that the next best thing to being really inside Christendom is to be really outside of it. I think that's what you were just trying to exactly say. Exactly right. Yep. Right. And a particular point of it is that the popular critics of Christianity are not really outside it. They are on a debatable ground in every sense of the term. They are doubtful in their very doubts. Their criticism has taken on a curious tone as of a random and illiterate heckling. Yep. And a lot of what we want to cover mm -hmm. in this introduction to the book that Chesterton gives us here is the relation of the critics yeah. of Christianity to Christianity itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a huge part of what this book is all about. He's saying that these critics are not even in a good position to criticize Christianity because they are themselves stuck within the shadow of Christianity. He says yeah. a little later, the penumbra. They're yeah, stuck yeah. within the shadow of it. 
And therefore, they themselves, without fully understanding what it is they're even criticizing, are in an attitude of reaction to Christianity. And he says they would be better to function as critics if they were truly outside of the Christian faith and able to see it objectively. I love what he says here because it almost expresses perfectly what I observe with like the the critics and, and like maybe like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins. But that marks their mood about the whole religious tradition. They are in a state of reaction against it. Yes. It is well with the boy when he lives on his father's land and well with him again when he is far enough from it to look back on it and see it as a whole. Yeah, and that as a whole mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, that yeah. yeah. But these people have got into an intermediate state, have fallen into an intervening valley from which they can see neither the heights beyond them nor the heights behind. They cannot get out of the penumbra, which is what you were just talking about, of Christian controversy. They cannot be Christians and they cannot leave off being anti-Christians. Yes. That made me crack up. Yep. Their whole atmosphere is the atmosphere of a reaction, which also makes me laugh sulks, perversity, petty criticism, they still live in the shadow of the faith and have lost the light of the faith. And that's what you were just trying to say. Right. They live in the shadow of the faith, Mm -hmm. but they've lost the light of the faith. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, precisely tells the story of my own turn from Christ to atheism, right? And looking back on Christianity and saying all these things that are wrong with Christianity, and yet, without even realizing how very much I was holding on to That's of right. the Christian faith, in order to even make a criticism right. of it. Because you used to do that to me before we ever right. got married, <laughs> and before you ever came back. Right. And we see it in Sam Harris and in Richard Dawkins. They're constantly making claims mm-hmm. about how foolish Christianity is on the basis of what Christianity teaches. It's like, you can't do that. If you're going to truly be outside the faith, then maybe you have a position from which to criticize it. Mm -hmm. But you, Richard Dawkins, who buy into so much of the reality of science as being founded in some sort of search for ultimate real truth, Mm You're making religious assumptions that are founded in the Judeo-Christian culture and tradition that you can't legitimately make if you're going to be tearing down Christianity at the level at which you're doing it. Right. Sort of, again, like you, when you would give me lectures, (laughs) or I should call them textures. Textures. When I used to text you about things, yes. Yeah, and and teach me about Christianity, and at the same time... (laughs) It's an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I would I would remove you from my phone. <laughs> Angri- Until I text you again and you Angrily. have to ask your son for my number back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, the ne- the next thing that Chesterton says also cracks me up and it and it feels like a perfect response to these people you know, who you just said, Harris and Dawkins and and other critics. I love this reply from Chesterton. For those in whom a mere reaction has thus become an obsession. (laughs) And they are obsessed. uh I do seriously recommend the imaginative effort of conceiving the 12 apostles as Chinamen. In other words, I recommend these critics to try to do as much justice to Christian saints as if they were pagan sages. Yes. Because they always speak highly of the pagan. Right. 
Sages. And this is famous in our leftist culture mm -hmm. these days. They talk down that which is their tradition, the familiar. Yeah. yeah. And it is a way of virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make the point that they've gone beyond this, that they're superior to it, and that those who hold on to it are mere cavemen, yeah. troglodytes, who are dwelling in the past and not really moving forward as the progressive reality demands. Yeah. And yet they utterly embrace oh, yeah. other critical traditions. Yeah. And this is that tradition in academia of relativism mm -hmm. that says that nobody's got it right, right? There, there is no real truth. There yeah. is no right or wrong. There's just different traditions and each one is as good as the other. And it doesn't matter which one you embrace. Well, and then does. they're so stupid and silly in saying that because it does matter because right. everything <laughs> but Christianity is right. good. And Christianity is evil and wrong and, and right. oppressive and all the rest of the things that they want to condemn in the Western world. So just like we said about Richard Dawkins and the other atheists, yeah. they're holding on to the claims of Christianity in order to condemn Christianity. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what Lewis says, too, in other places in his essays and you've been trying about to say. morality. Right. It's like you cannot throw out traditional morality because you're always holding on to a piece of it and elevating it to the highest position and making that the sole element of ethics. And ethics is not that. Ethics is, properly speaking, the balance of the entire ethical tradition. Right, right. And that's best represented by a religion like Christianity that right. really and truly does balance the things. And they throw out the baby, baby with the bathwater. Right, right, right. Okay. So Chesterton goes on to say, now, the best relation to our spiritual home is to be near enough to love it, but the next best is to be far enough away not to hate it. Right. It is the contention of these pages that while the best judge of Christianity is a Christian, the next best judge would be something more like a Confucian. The worst judge of all is the man now most ready with his judgments, the ill-educated Christian turning gradually into the ill-tempered agnostic, entangled in the end of a feud of which he never understood the beginning, blighted with a sort of hereditary boredom with he knows not what, and already weary of hearing what he has never heard. Yes, I love that. Already weary of hearing what he has never heard. And that is characteristic. It wasn't of me as an atheist, mm -hmm. because as an atheist, I had turned away from Christianity mm -hmm. and really and truly heard it first. Mm -hmm. I became a Christian and fully embraced it and then turned away from it. But most atheists who are rejecting it, and I can't help thinking of our genetically modified skeptic yeah. friend on YouTube, and I can't yeah. forget what his name is, yeah. but he seems to me to be someone who sort of got a Christian education, yeah. but didn't really understand all the things that were going on and right. turned away from it and hates it. Because right. it is something that he never understood fully to start with. Right. Or he looked at man rather than at God. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. And that's what you said as we listened to some of his materials. He looked at what the church was doing yeah. rather than at what God was doing. Yeah. yeah. I remember right. talking to our daughter this week who complained about while growing up 
she had to read the boring scripture and memorize the things she couldn't understand. <laughs> Do you remember that? And I mean, I tried to explain to her in understanding the beginning and learning the rules of the game and learning the reading, the writing, the arithmetic right. of scripture so that you could graduate that phase of Christianity and then you could specialize or right. explore everything within. And because you understand the rules of the game now, you're able to, you know, go farther. Right. And not just that, and I know we're sort of departing from the script here, uh -huh. but not just that, but once you learn those basic boring rules mm -hmm. and then you start to play the game and it gets really exciting. It does. And that's what we were trying to tell her. Right. And it's like the problem is we're finding maybe it's just where we live. I'm not sure how it is in the rest of the country, the rest of the world, but in evangelical Christianity, we just keep living in those in the doldrums, in the, the boring stuff. Yeah, I don't want to say the boring <laughs> stuff, but we keep staying in learning the initial rules of the game. <laughs> right. When and, we go to church on Sunday and yeah. each sermon is a salvation sermon, yeah. it's like, oh, give me a break. Yeah. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. And we're not moving further along into playing the game now. Right. Moving to the meat rather than the milk. Yeah, that that's exactly right. That's what we were trying to tell her, explain to her. Right. Because she was, you know, she was trying to, she's trying to figure out, work out her salvation. Right. And, <laughs> but you and I are finding that true too. The more we look now at all of these things and the little hints that we get of the nature right. of God from these, like, like when we found chiastic parallelism, it's like yeah. both of us were like so sky high at that moment. Right. It's like, wow, that's fantastic. Look right. at what God does and how he does it. And, and what he enjoys, hits. what he enjoys, oh, yeah. and what he and likes, and his personality. It is so fun. It yeah, is so exciting. beautiful, so exciting, yeah. and it draws us farther up and farther in. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I think, I don't know, maybe that's kind of what's missing a little bit right and now. Kind of what we're doing this week, too, yeah. with, when we looked at Kurt Wise's video yeah. and starting to look at some of the other Christian scientists yeah. who are writing, Christian create creationists who are writing from a biblical perspective on yeah. science. And yeah. so we're having just, a lot of fun with that. Yeah. yeah. So a little further down, Chesterton says the same point that you've been trying to make about the strange case of the critics of the Mount Ebal tablet. Yes. So let me read this. It is because the critics are not detached that they do not see this detachment. It is because they are not looking at things in a dry light that they cannot see the difference between black and white. It is because they are in a particular mood of reaction and revolt that they have a motive for making out that all the white is dirty gray and all the black not so black as it is painted. Yes. I do not say there are not human excuses for their revolt. I do not say it is not in some ways sympathetic. What I say is that it is not in any way scientific. Yes. And then he goes on to say an iconoclast may be indignant. An iconoclast may be justly indignant. But an iconoclast is not impartial. Right. And before this quote, he refers to the only seeing the part rather than the whole, which is another point that you've been trying to right. make. With the but, Mounty Ball critics. Yeah. They refuse to look at the whole situation and the context of the find. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way they can condemn it. And so they take the part for the whole. But what Chesterton says before this last quote that we just read but with this, we come to the final and vital point. I shall try to show in these pages that when we do make this imaginative effort to see the whole thing from the outside, we find that it really looks like what is traditionally said about it inside. Yeah. It is exactly when the boy gets far enough off to see the giant that he sees that 
he really is a giant. Right. And this actually does parallel my experience mm -hmm. as an atheist. Yeah, yeah. It took yeah. me 25 years to get far enough away from Christianity to look back on it and say, that makes sense. Yeah. And not only does it make sense, it makes as much sense as anything I've been doing over here. And it manages to pull together the story in such a way as to preserve all the things that are valuable about human existence. Mm -hmm. And then I got to the point in 2019 where I said, why would I choose this rational vision, this purely rational vision that is made up in the minds of man and sounds really, really good and really, really convincing over another rational vision that is equally profoundly rational and yet also manages to hold on to everything of value, science, love, human emotion, reality, truth, all of those things that I valued so deeply. It's like set them side by side and yeah. there is no longer any comparison between right. the and two. We had, I choose Christ. Right. And we had a discussion about this on our walk the other night and we were talking about how on your deathbed, you're lying there dying and you say, I'm so glad that I held to the atheist view and <laughs> I have no meaning and no value and yes. nothing. In the end, there's nothing. And now I go off to nothingness. Right, right. Or the other view where there's value, there's meaning, and let's just say none of it's real. Right. At least you lived a value-filled, meaningful life. Right. Caring for others. Yep. You know. And you passed it on. Right. It's the torch of humanity. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and you mentioned how much that reflects C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. Okay. So we have that link. So why don't you read that, John? Okay. When, when Puddleglum, it, it's the character Puddleglum, he, they are all, he and his um, two friends, Eustace yeah, oh, and Paul, and they're being kind of like hypnotized by the Green Witch. Right. And Puddleglum wants to pull himself out of it, out right. of this spell. So he burns his foot in the fire, and then he gets back to reality, and this is what he says. Right. He says, one word, ma'am, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it, so I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one more thing to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case... The made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies, making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So, thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, 
We're leaving your court at once and getting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think. But that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. And and a little background also on that is she had been trying to tell them that there was no overworld. There right. was no it's Narnia. It's the argument there was of the atheists. Right. right. You're living in a fantasy world to think that right. there is a world beyond this one. This is the Hegelian notion of imminence yeah. versus transcendence. Right, right. And you can make a good case for it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> exactly. which one are you going to buy exactly. in the end? Exactly. Is one case better than the other? Yeah, I really do think, and this is why I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. that our side is the more rationally supportable case. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Right. But beyond that, it's also by far the one that preserves the greatest human value and truth and everything that we human beings love and treasure, whether we're Christian or not, mm-hmm. what humanity always deeply values. Right, right. So we have a pretty radical choice in front of us, one way or the other. And, and as Chesterton says, when you get far enough away from Christianity, from the church, and from what he would say are the modern doctrines of scientism. Mm -hmm. You see again, the stark realities that set two things. Humanity apart from nature, the evolutionary view and Christ apart from all other religious structures in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's his point in this preparatory note. And it's his point in the book at large. Yeah. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.